Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. Uh, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Larry Stone at Lingua Franca. It's uh, August 8th, 2019. Thanks for joining us today, Larry. We appreciate this. Thank you very much. Uh, let's start with the most obvious question of all, which is why wine? Why wine? Uh, I grew up with it. Uh, why, why did I choose wine? I mean, it was something that chose me in a way. It was uh, my parents had, they were not wealthy. We, I grew up on Capitol Hill in Seattle, and we, they had things like Vouvray or you know, regional wines from France or Germany or Austria, uh, and uh, and then uh, we we uh, also picked fruit and cooked. We my dad worked at the Pike Place Market, and so we were always involved in food. I couldn't eat the processed foods that most of my friends were eating. I was forbidden to eat even a potato chip, so <laughs> I had to eat home cooked meal from the mar- fresh food from the market, which was unusual in the 1950s in America. And so uh, part of that to me was interesting when they had wine, what wine would go with it? Would it be the Vouvray or would it be a simple California Sauvignon Blanc or something like that? You know, what, what's, what works? So already when I was young, I thought about spices, food, and how wine worked with it just out of, I was interested in flavor. And I also like chemistry. So I thought that maybe there's a chemistry component to that, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, you know, because my mother would talk about making sauces so I knew about the chemistry of food and I thought it was fascinating and then I realized because I had been studying and cooking with her since I was five or six that you know I knew about aromas. I could smell a spice and say I know what that is and, uh, and so uh, I actually freaked out one of my uh, elementary school kids who was, lived on, uh, around the corner from me and I had to pass this house before going to my apartment. Uh, and I'd say, oh, it smells like you're having lasagna. We were just walking up the street. I said, oh, it smells like you're having lasagna tonight. It smells really good. And he goes, how do you know? I said, don't you smell it? There's a, I mean, I don't know. It could be like something spaghetti, but it smells like bechamel. It smells like, uh, like red sauce with meat. And, you know, there's all the components. It just smells to me like lasagna. So the next day, he like avoided me in, in school. He said, my mother said, I'm never to talk to you again. You must be spying on us. And I go like, why? Because she said, how could you know that we were making lasagna? And I go like, I could smell it. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't take that as an answer. So, um, you know, and then I made, I, I started being interested in how wine was made and I loved chemistry. So by the time I was 14, I got a college textbook and I went to these winemaking supply stores and I bought equipment to make to make wine, but we were too poor to buy grapes. So I, I took apple juice and tried to make, I knew already what a Mosul Reese thing that I preferred it to rind, and I tried to have a, a little bit more elevated malic acid in the finished wine than you'd find in a, in a, in a Rheingau, so it'd be more like Mosul. And ba- pretty much I manufactured a 10%, I, I wanted the goal to be 95 10% to 10.5%, and I manufactured a 10% alcohol. Uh, grape juice wine or apple juice wine that tasted like Mosul and it was confirmed even 10 years later when we found a stray bottle and I gave it to a faculty at a I brought it to a faculty party and tasted them blind on it and they all thought it was Mosul (laughs) so it was hard for them to get to the new world and then I said no then they figured out well it has to be Washington Riesling then 
And uh, I go, well, it's Washington, <laughs> but it's apples. And they go like, huh? So I had to show them the bottle, which was the little screw cap thing I made 10 years earlier when I was 13. So, so I, I had a good idea of the chemistry of wine, and some of those came from the encyclopedias of wine that I was reading already, and some from the books. So I got a book somehow. I went to the library a lot. So I, I got a book that gave the acid components of Mosul versus Rheingau, and I just imitated that. So what made you want to pursue this as a, as a career as you were growing up? Uh, I loved wine. I loved food. Uh, I started, because I, I could cook really well, and I, I went to, a, I went to a Garfield High School in Seattle, which is very famous. And at the time I went there, there were race riots, but we had a, we had a very, it was a very interesting international community. We had... Uh, uh, you know, Quincy Jones had gone there, Jimi Hendrix, Bruce Lee. I mean, uh, they all had been there. Uh, Bruce Lee's disciples, were, a couple of them were in my gym class. Uh, they were older than us, but, you know, but they pretended to be high school students. And because he was shorter than me, even he could get away with it. But he was definitely deadly with his fists, which I saw. I asked him to do something. He said, no, no, no. But we we'd been locker mates in the gym for like a, almost a year. And he finally did something. And then the PE teacher caught us. <laughs> And he was—he he, uh, gave us swats. You know, they don't do that anymore. But he gave us swats. But I think the PE teacher, ex-marine, really liked to give swats anyway. But um, anyway, it was a very good background. But it was a tough school, and I was small, so I learned—you know—in elementary school to fight for myself, and I got along with everybody as, re as a result. And but I—but the one thing I couldn't do is be like the football player, or the basketball player. And uh, but I realized that. Um, People were always curious about what I was eating for lunch because it was so unique. And I and I brought stuff I made, and they always loved it. They said, "Oh, you can, you know." And I one time I brought uh, my mother made me bring some excess cream puffs that I made. I, I didn't know how big a, a batch of potashu would be, you know, in terms of the finished product. So I made enough for three dozen cream puffs, and uh, I, we were a family of three. So it was kind of hard for us to eat eat it all. <laughs> And I, my mum just stuck it in a bag and said, you're taking it to school when I, when I was going off. And I go, no, they'll beat me up. They, no one bakes. What kid, what guy bakes? And um, so it was on the, I put it underneath the table and people were interested in my lunches all the time. So they said, what's this? Some guy figured out what's, what I had underneath. There was a bag, there was something. So he opened it up and he says, oh, cream puffs. And the whole, you know, the lunchroom basically swarmed over and they were gone in like two seconds. And then one guy came back and said, where'd you get these? They're really good. And I go like, well, I, I made them. I was wondering what he would do. And um, they said, wow, you're better cook than my mother. And I go like, OK. And then I realized that the girls kind of liked it, so I kept cooking. <laughs> so I cooking went with wine. And I made gourmet meals for my college. Uh, we rented houses you know, to save money. And you know, I, I was the cook. They didn't know how to boil water. You know, literally, I think some of them didn't know how to boil water. And, um, and so I wound up cooking these gourmet meals. And actually, I caught them selling tickets to one of my dinners at the end of the term. And, I, and a guy came in the kitchen asking him who the chef was, because he's really good. And I go, like, what chef? It's like, what do you? He said, no, there was a, post, a, a little post-it on the, in the, in the, facu, on the uh, department board you know, in the commons that said, uh, that said gourmet dinner, $25 a person. <laughs> so my roommates were selling tickets to this and keeping the money from me. But I, I said, you know, at the end of the dinner, I said, I found out what you're doing. So I loved, and part of it was the wine selections I made. I think I bought a Beaujolais, 
a little Beaujolais from a grower that was like $2.50 a bottle at the time, and, and uh, that was with my meal, and people loved it. Hmm. So I just did it. It was not like a career. I was studying, first I studied chemistry, and after I did research in chemistry, I realized I didn't want to be in a laboratory my whole life and run the same experiment over and again. And, uh, and then, um, so I just took a bunch of humanities. I did music, I, I uh, studied art, and languages, and poetry. I, I wrote, actually wrote poetry. I was published as a poet once, and I, I actually wound up editing a, a, a journal that I helped to fun, found for about three years called Papers and Romance. It was a linguistics and liter literary criticism journal that was actually subscribed to by many universities around the world, to my surprise. But <laughs> you know, you had to publish or perish, so people were looking for some place they could publish, and we mm -hmm. we kept we published. Mm -hmm. We had really good people working with the magazine. So uh, anyway, that I, I wound up in comparative literature after all that. You know, my I wandered from chemistry and and physics to. Uh, Comparative literature and languages, and I wound up getting a Fulbright to Germany, and I, and I studied in uh, Germany before that, and uh, with my family, my father's family was from Vienna, so and they had resettled there uh, after the war, and um, so I stayed with them for about a year and worked as in a, as a, an apprentice in a bank, so I could have some spending money, and I went to school most of the day, went to the university. Of Vienna, so I, I, I had the University of Tübingen for the Fulbright University of Vienna when I was staying with my family a couple, a few years before that to build my German proficiency. But all the time, I'd be going to wineries and vineyards. And uh, when I was a kid, even when I was growing up, my parents took me to California, to Napa, to uh, Livermore. We went. I remember going to Wente in 1959 or so. I was like eight, nine years old and walking around the earth pack floors they had at the time and they had railroad hopper cars that went from the vineyard to the winery and the only one who can confirm that that's still around is Eric Wente when he came and ate it at Rubicon restaurant later mm -hmm. on. I said no one that works for you remembers this and he said oh yeah I used to love those redwood fermenters and the hoppers that we had coming in you know so awesome. it, it was a very different era no one went to wineries and they were not very glamorous either. <laughs> so tell me about the process of becoming a, a, sommelier, a sommelier at this point. Well, I was, I was a graduate student and I was teaching, I was writing my doctoral dissertations. I had already, I had already uh, started one and didn't like it because I realized my, my path in academia would be in a very different direction than I would like it to take if I had persisted in writing my, my uh, original dissertation. So I switched and I was starting the second dissertation and, uh, and I was teaching three classes. I was an acting instructor by this time at the University of Washington. And I taught I, I, film studies, English and German, and, uh, and also uh, uh, I even taught French once, which is a travesty. Don't tell anyone. Don't, I shouldn't say this. This should probably come off. But my French is terrible. It's my last language. But I knew enough, apparently, to teach beginning French, according to the University of Washington's uh, standards at the time, at least. But, uh, but uh, mainly English, German, probably more German than English, mm -hmm. and then, uh, and then uh, film studies. And uh, a friend of mine who studied medieval uh, German poetry and therefore was unemployable even at the university, uh, he was a bartender. He, he knew enough to like, train as a bartender, and he'd started working actually as a, as a, uh, a, a computer manual writer, a tech writer for mm -hmm. 
a small company called Aldus, which created PageMaker originally. Oh, wow. <clears throat> and then he was hired by a small young company called Microsoft to be their tech writer. There. And um, so he retired at age 35. But at this time, he was still basically tending bar on the waterfront. And um, he said, there's a job for a sommelier in Seattle. I go, like, there's only two jobs for a sommelier in Seattle. So where is this one? And he goes, well, it's the one at the Red Cabbage. I said, well, I, I, I'll never get it. Because I tried out to be a sommelier at Ray's Boathouse, which was the only other really uh, real sommelier job in Seattle at the time. This is like 1980. I tried to get a job at Ray's in 1975 or four. I was just being finishing my undergraduate studies, and they wouldn't hire me because I didn't. I was like 23 or whatever. They didn't. They didn't think I had enough experience, and they and there was a little. They didn't. I didn't understand what they were saying exactly when they were saying uh, the word for bone. And they and they made it sound like the German city Bonn, and I got confused. So, I there was and then so I didn't get the job, and I thought, well, I just won't get it because no, I have no qualifications to be a sommelier. I just know a lot about wine that I studied on my own, and uh, so you know, I I, he, I we had a twenty dollar bet. I couldn't get the job, and he said, you can get it. You wouldn't have to teach, and you'd work two days a week, and then you could write your dissertation. The remaining five. And you'd finish instead of teaching every day three and doing office hours. So I, I, I applied for the job and I went through four interviews because I had left 10 years of my life out of the uh, resume because the, the owner uh, had been a Vietnam vet and I had a student deferment. And, he, I, and my friend said, you can't mention you've been a student or you still are a student because he, it will disqualify you. And I go like, okay, I'll leave it out, but there's a 10-year gap. So he saw that and he had me checked out. So the fourth interview was of, after a pause. And he goes, look, you know so much about mine. You've gone through three interviews, one with, my, with the head sommelier and two with me. And I was a sommelier. And you know, you know more about wine than anyone I know. And uh, he had spent that last interview first by like, he, took, he had an encyclopedia of wine open in Alexis Lachines, and he kept asking me questions. And the final one was, what is Gumpoldskirchen? Tell me what Gumpoldskirchen is. And I go like, well, I know Gumpoldskirchen. I go like, so it's Rotgipfler, it's your founder, it's sold and bought by Wien, it's part of the Termin Region of Austria, and, uh, and it's, it's mainly sold there at the casinos. And he, go, he slammed the thing shut. I don't know what planet you're from, but, but you know more about wine than anyone. And then, and then he said, but you, haven't, you have 10 years off your resume. If you've done anything that you regret, you should tell me now. Because I've had you checked out. And, and uh, I can't find anything. But I'll find out you know, if you've done something. I go, well, it's, I, I assume that you had a background check on my criminal record, which I don't really have one. <laughs> but. Uh, you may not like what I have to say even less. And I said, I was a student for 10 years. And he goes, you're right. Ivory Tower top types are lazy. They don't do anything. They just are smart asses. And they, and they, they, don't, they, they don't do much. You know, they just they try to get by by talking a lot. And um, so I, he said, but if you had any restaurant experience at all, I may hire you. I would hire you, actually. And I go like. Well, I left that off my resume, too, because I thought it would disqualify me, because I had been a dishwasher for two, and he stopped me and said, you're hired. <laughs> and I, and he, then his next line was, you know, I started at age 14 by being a dishwasher, and they're the hardest working people in the restaurant business. And if you were a dishwasher for two years, you'll do anything. So I go like, OK. 
So it was a part-time job. I got this job that I'd actually wanted for, you know, already for five, six years. I wanted to get a job like this to help pay my way through college. And here I was, and I thought, well, six months, I'll be doing this, and I'll finish my dissertation, and I'll be teaching comparative literature at some university somewhere. Mm -hmm. But it didn't quite work that way. So here I am, you know, almost 35 years later, or longer, you know, still being a sommelier. So I guess I never grew up out of my, you know, like the kid in the candy store. It was just too tempting to stay there. Plus, uh, unlike my English classes or German classes where people were falling asleep because they had to take the credit, people kept asking me more questions about wine. So it was very exciting to like all of a sudden have guests that so would tell us more, do this. And I said, I have to stop. You know, you have to tell them, no, I have to stop because I have other things I have to do. And they'd say, no, come back. You know, it's like, well, what a refreshing change. So I could teach, but it was something people actually wanted to learn. And mm -hmm. I'd have, I had uh, winemakers and, and wine writers and, you know, guests come in and ask questions all the time. Mm -hmm. And I was in the news. I won, you know, so it was interesting. And then later on, I went to work for Four Seasons Hotels. They, they recruited me after I left the first restaurant, which was the Red Cabbage in Seattle on the Western in Madison. And, uh, and I wound up going to the Four Seasons on 4th and Madison, basically, 4th and University. Anyway, so um, uh, when I was there, they had enrolled me in a competition for the best sommelier in, in the Northwest, which if I won, would go to the best sommelier in America, which if anybody won that, they'd go to the best sommelier in the world competition in Paris. Mm -hmm. And the competition was like one week after they recruited me. And I said, I know more about American wine or Italian wine than I know about French wine at this point. No, you're, you're, you're entering and don't embarrass us. <laughs> okay, so I, I knew something about French wine. So I studied more and I won the competition in the, in the Northwest, beating all these people I thought would certainly trounce me. And I was just worried I wouldn't, I'd embarrass myself. That I won, and then uh, I was sent to New York, but I, I had had bronchitis. I got, it was a snow, freak snowstorm in Seattle. It was a blizzard, and I wound up with bronchitis. But I still came in fourth. So the next year, I won again in the Northwest, and I won the title of Best Sommelier in the United States in 1986, and then I won the title of Best in the World in 88 in Paris for, in French wine. So that was my career path as a professional sommelier. Tell me about what the competition was like. What did you have to do to win this kind of competition? Uh, you, well, it was all French. That, that competition was all French, so that was, you had to know every region that you couldn't even get in Seattle at the time. I mean, back in 1975 to 80, when I was active, it, up to 85 even, when, when these competitions, when I was enrolled 84 to 88, when I was in these competitions, you could not get small producers from the Jura or from, even from the Loire or from, uh, you know, regions in Provence. Mm -hmm. They didn't happen. You got big negotiant wines and you got the big names because there was no market for these smaller country wines. Plus, the quality back then was much different. Mm -hmm. uh, there were a few good producers which remained in the regions that uh, they were in, in France or Italy or wherever it was. And they didn't come, they came to New York perhaps because you had a large population of immigrants mm -hmm. who were still active in food and wine in, in Boston, but more in New York. And, and, uh, and then you had nothing, you know, maybe an outpost in LA and San Francisco. Hmm. So uh, we got nothing. I had to go to Europe or I had to go to San Francisco to buy samples to taste. So it was a big, it, there was no internet. I'd write letters to the trade commissions and I'd 
try and I got as many books as I could. I'd go to like New York or San Francisco or Paris and, and try to get the books that would help me study. Mm -hmm. And uh, but the information was actually almost maintained as a secret by the French government. Uh, they had the INAO book, INAO book, the Institut National d'Appellation d'Origine Contrôlée book of all the rules for every AOC in France. And um, you couldn't have access to it unless you were a member of the, of the Institut. And you go like, well, how do I know? How do I study for this test? Because I can't go to all these regions. I'm, I'm, I made, you know, I think at that time I was earning probably 20,000 a year uh, and I had my student loan debt so I couldn't travel and you know not at least and certainly not to the extent people can today sure, and sure. not not subsidized like it is today by many wine regions trying to promote their wines so I I just did as much I what I could and I wound up uh, learning a lot and um, and it was you you had to know theory you had to know theory you had to be able to blind taste a wine I didn't know it would be on the test, so I had to know that I had to be familiar at least with what a Trousseau tasted like, or a Gamay, or a wine from the you know the upper uh, Rhone, you know mm -hmm. when you're going into Switzerland, but still in France, uh, wines from small regions, minor regions in the Macon, Côte Chalonnaise, and in in, uh, in Côte d'Or, but also everything about every small regional. So that was the tough part: studying, getting the wines, getting the tasting, the theory. You, you did what you could with the books you had. So it's very stressful because here you are from Seattle, a former scholar still trying to entertaining ideas of finishing your doctoral dissertation, <laughs> and you're having to compete on an international stage with people who are mainly French. So almost all my competitors in the best sommelier in French wines held in, in the US and then in Paris were French. It was the best uh, sommelier of Norway. He was Norwegian. But then the best sommelier of Germany was, was French, the best sommelier of Ireland was French, the best sommelier of, you know, you name it. There were like 18 countries involved, 14 to 18 countries, and they were almost all French, except for me, the Japanese guy, and then two Scandinavians. So <laughs> you figure they have an advantage. Mm -hmm. But uh, actually the Japanese guy did really well, Mitsuo Kogai, and unfortunately he passed away recently, maybe a couple of years ago. Very, very good gentleman. He ran the wine program for Hafuna Prince, uh, for the Prince Hotels in Tokyo. <laughs> and uh, he was the president of the Jap Japan Sommelier Association after a while, so he was very good. And, uh, and uh, he came, actually officially he came in third, but I think he should come in second. But officially it was Philippe Forbrock, the best sommelier of France, who came in second. So that was quite a revolution. It was reported on by, in the first issue, in, of the very first issue of Food Arts had an article on me and uh, David Burke, of all people, who was still at the River Cafe in New York, and he had won a competition in France, uh, part of the Bocuse d'Or, and I had won the title of best sommelier in the world that year. So it was quite a change in my life then after I did that. So tell me what happened after that and, and kind of the next steps in your evolution as a restaurateur in Smollier. Well, I was taken to New York by, uh, by Four Seasons. I was working for Four Seasons at the time I won, and they had me run both the Four Seasons and the Ritz-Carlton wine program, which they owned the rights to, to Ritz-Carlton in Chicago. They bought that hotel, be so that, and then they didn't want to change it to Four Seasons because then Ritz-Carlton could turn around and say, well, we're not competing with you because 
you have the right, you had the rights to the Ritz-Carlton name in Chicago, but you changed the name to Four Seasons. So they kept the Ritz and built a new Four Seasons pretty much across the street. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was across the street and up a block. And I, and I was to manage both at first and then just migrate over to the other one, but also do a corporate wine program. And that didn't work out so well. They paid me what they said, but none of the duties I expected to have blossomed because there were internal fights between the GMs of the hotels involved because I was such a good profit center for them. Even if I was doing nothing on the floor, they said, whenever you're here, you, we just, our sales are much better. So we don't want to be compensated for the loss, uh, you know, for, for a year time when you go to another property to develop it. We just want you to be here. Mm -hmm. So it was a little battle. So I said, I, it's too boring for me to stay at this one location where there's not that much to do on a daily basis. So I, I resigned and Charlie Trotter uh, picked me up, his wife uh, Lisa and I had started the Chicago Sommelier Society, or this, uh, I think it was officially Chicago Sommelier Association, the CSA, and we, and we ran it. Uh, part, we had many meetings at Trotter's and she said, well, I'm gonna go to law school and maybe you can take over my job as GM of the restaurant. And so it was only two years old at the time they started in 87, this was like 89. And um, so I took over. I, I took over from her and, uh, and uh, it was a very exciting time because we were doing so much. Charlie was really wanting to become world famous. Mm -hmm. And he, he, he uh, used my knowledge about food and wine to help develop menus that were food friendly. But he came up with, I mean, m most of the ideas, I have to say, were his, but on food and wine collaborations, he was brilliant with me. Uh, we developed uh, dishes together to have with, with specific wines when guests Kent would come in to the restaurant. I'd say, uh, you know, that fish menu you had, they're starting off with Sasikai in 1985. And so, um, you know, that won't work, you know, maybe we can change. He said, well, I have all this fish, I can't change. I said, well, if you change the sauces or the accompaniments, you know, the garnishes, you can make it friendly to the wine. And we talked about things and, um, and so he had gone from a reputation before I came of not making food that was very good with wine at all to being like the best, one of the best in the world in terms of food and wine matching. And, and that was a wonderful thing that we collaborated together on. But you know, he he was the driving force behind the restaurant. He was amazing. His inspiration and his dedication to that, and you can see how many great people worked with him mm -hmm. and how he cultivated them, you know, mm -hmm. helped push them. So it was a good it was a good part of my career. It was very exciting because we'd have all the best chefs in the world come and do something at Trotters. He'd bring them in at his own expense, and we'd do things with Jean Louis Paladin or with with. Uh, uh, Girardet, Freddie Girardet. We we had a sponsor who flew him in on a private jet from Switzerland with his with the wine he wanted for his dinner, and uh, you know, and we did dinner. He did a meal with us for like 150 people. So it was all sorts of exciting things that I would never have experienced otherwise, mm -hmm. and you know, it was really his vision that, that that allowed me to do that. So that that exposed me to many many more things in the world of food and wine. Tell me about the process of that. You talked about uh, pairing wines with food, that, that kind of process. Tell me about developing that kind of menu and, and how, you're, how you put that together in, in your brain and then create the, create the menu, create the list. Well, you know, basically when I teach food and wine matching, it's the same thing I did when I was a kid, when I was you know, 13 or 12. I go like, well, my, I, ta I was taught how to make sauces by my mother. She knew all the French sauces. She, she was a very good cook. 
she never would want to be a chef, but she cooked for family meals all the time with a larger family, and she was excellent. Everyone thought she was one of the best cooks they ever knew. Mm -hmm. And um, and so, but she would always be critical of her sauces. Like she'd make a, we had a, just a chicken soup, and she said, and we'd all say, oh, this is delicious, and, sh and she'd go, well, I'm not so happy with the, with the stock I made, too much carrot. And you go like, it's delicious. She said, well, it makes it a little sweet. And I go like, so I, now you're all, t now everybody else is saying, no, it's wonderful. I'm going like, what does she mean? So I taste, I go like, well, I can see the carrot. Okay, now I can see the carrot. And I, and I go like, it is a little sweet, but it was delicious. Then you go, but she said, I, I could see what she meant. Just dial it back. If she had dialed that carrot back a little bit, it would have been a very different soup mm -hmm. to her more integrated. And the same thing, uh, you know, having studied chemistry, I knew that if you have something that's too salty, if you add an acid, it, it counteracts by the, 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 you know, the pH will change. So you add acid to something that's too salty, or if it's too, um, if it's too salty, you add acid. So you, you, you think your soup is too salty, add lemon juice, or add something else mm -hmm. if you can. And so I could dial in any dish to the exact chemistry of the of uh, of the wine mm -hmm. or or and or I could choose a wine that would match the chemistry because I have a very good knowledge of pH and acid and how it works with different wines and different foods mm -hmm. so you know that was the basic thing and that's the most important thing it turns out for any food and wine match it's not what little herb you use or what uh, whether the acids coming from lemon or verjou or whatever it'll change the flavor profile and you can make it work better with the wine you're having by choosing the best acid that would work with it but but basically if you have the chemistry it's more seamless and and uh, the other things are additional uh, you know uh, accidents that help improve the whole the whole integration of flavors the basic thing is the structure and people don't understand they talk about you know contrasting acid with the with the richness of the dish well that's if you want to cut down the flavor as well mm -hmm. so there are good examples of that from charcuterie but I learned all this when I was 12 so I, it's, to me it's like I, I can go on about it but but when you're you know, if you have charcuterie you look at the classic uh, Boucher, the, the, the sauces from the butcheries, you know, they're sweet and sour. Why is that? Because they all have richness. But you're trying to fight, because refrigeration didn't really exist until the 20th century on a mass scale, you, you, you had to fight rancid flavors. Mm -hmm. So they wouldn't be rotten, but rancid, so they wouldn't be fresh. Today you can get a piece of organ meat from a butcher if you're a restaurant that is perfectly fresh, right, and it has no odor. Mm -hmm. But back then you'd buy, you always see ammoniated of flavors and aromas coming. So you had to fight it. So how did you do it? You put acid on it. Why? Because ammonia is a basic. Acid is, a, is an acid. You know, whether it's lemon juice or verjus or wine reduced. And you, you fight that and then you want, but that kills the flavor of the meat as well, that organ meat. So to bring it back, you have a little sweetness. So if you look at the classic dishes, they all were sweet and sour. And that's why people put lemon juice to this day on oysters, is because they probably don't like the flavor of oyster. If you really like the flavor of oyster, you'd put a creme fraiche with a little lemon zest on it. That would be really great. But you wouldn't want to put an acid. But you have to have a very fresh oyster. Why? What is an oyster? Oyster is, is seawater. OK, so it's salty. If you want to kill the flavor of an oyster because you think it's too strong, or you may not think it's perfectly clean because it smells fishy, then you put lemon on it. You put, that's what you do with fish. People do that with fish because they basically don't like fish. Honestly, I'm serious. If you really like fish and you have a great piece of fish, like a salmon, what would you put? You'd put a cream sauce, you'd put a mayonnaise with a dill, or you'd have something very creamy and rich. You're not putting a bunch of acid. Now, of course, mayonnaise does have acid, it's emulsified, but it's not like putting lemon juice mm -hmm. on it. 
And if you really want to cut the flavor, you, you put lemon juice. So everything tastes lemony. That's, so acid always beats fat in flavor. So you put a little acid on something, it's just a little bit funky, it becomes beautifully clean and fresh. Interesting. So all these things I studied and knew by cooking. Mm -hmm. I started cooking when I was seven for my parents. When I get home from elementary school, my mother would teach me the recipes and I enjoyed it. And, uh, but because she had such a good palate, I couldn't mess up with the sauces or the, you know, not too much of this or too much of that. Sure. A tough judge. Yeah. So tell us what happens next after Trotters and after you, you have, you're kind of a known name now. So what happens after, after that? Oh, well, you know, I was known before Trotters actually because I'd been the best sommelier in the world before sure. he hired me. True. And that's one of the reasons why he hired me, you know, because I, so I wanted to leave. His wife knew that. And then he said, well, be, you know, maybe you can work for us. And I, I said six months and I'm going back to Seattle. And that became almost five years. But by that time, uh, my dad, the reason I want to get back to the West Coast is because my, my father had Parkinson's and he was getting incapacitated. And I'm an only child and I had one daughter. And they could no longer visit in winters. So mm -hmm. I thought I'd get back to the West Coast. And uh, so I left Trotters and went and uh, an opportunity happened. I knew I couldn't go back to Seattle. There wasn't enough opportunity there yet for me. And so uh, I called a friend of mine in New York and said, if you hear of anything on the West Coast, give me a shout, because I want to move to San Francisco. Or uh, I said, not LA probably, but San Francisco would be great. And he goes, well, my, Drew Neporent, my, my, my boss, is opening a restaurant in San Francisco. He's, he's just looking at a site. And I go like, oh, wow, well, I'll call him. So I called Drew. And this was the first day I decided to leave Chicago to move west. And I, I called Drew, and Drew said, yeah, I'll go out next weekend. Do you want to come? And I go, sure. And I said, well, who's the chef you're thinking of? Oh, Tracy Desjardins. And I go like, Tracy, great. I love Tracy. So Tracy was working at Patina at that time in LA. And uh, I, we had done a Costa Mesa uh, party uh, for charity at Costa Mesa. The, and I was working as a cook with Charlie at that event. And that was a few months earlier. Um, and so I met her and her family, which had a great wine collection of Jaillet and uh, it was Jaillet, Le Fleuve, and then Ikem. Three things they collected, basically. And so you go like, well, that's not bad to collect those things. And uh, <laughs> so we had a big party. And we, we got to drink the Chassagne Mon Rocher from, uh, from uh, Ramoni, actually. I'm sorry, it wasn't, there was some Le Fleuve. It was mainly Ramoni from Ramoni. And uh, it was great just even to have like the, the small a little village wine from them it was fantastic. Uh, and so I said, when she's and she's also my size, so she's like oh, my height, maybe a little. I'm not sure who's taller. I think she's a little shorter than me, but you know by half an inch or something. But uh, and we got along really well. So uh, we I said, if she's in, uh, let's take a look. So it was great. We one day done. I went out uh, that weekend and. Uh, we started Rubicon, you know. We didn't know what it was going to be called. That came later, but uh, I, when we, when I moved out to California and we're still building it out, I had visited in 1981 with my family. Uh, no, not in '81. Was it '81? Was it that much earlier? Yeah. No, it had to be 1991. Sorry, '91. 1991. Um, I visited with my family. And uh, and we and Tony Soder gave us a tour of Napa Valley because I knew Tony pretty well, and he said, "Well, I want you to see some of the projects I'm doing. It's not just my own wines. You know, I'm starting Etude, but there's some other stuff." 
and one of the, and I got to meet Kathy Corison because she was working for him. With uh, he had come, he had been a consultant for Chapelet, mm -hmm. and then Kathy took over as winemaker, and she had her own, starting her own kind of project. And uh, and then at the, we had lunch, and he said, "I'm going to take you to a special place." And I said, "Where?" And he said, "Well, I don't want you to think negatively, but we're going to go over to the old Inglenook property and see Francis Ford Coppola's place because I'm consulting for him now." And I go like, really? Oh, that's amazing. I know that property really well. I was there as a kid. You know, I loved Inglenook. It was fun. It was one of the greatest names, you know, no longer, but it was. And he said, yeah, so we have the old vineyards and we're making wine there and you should see what we're doing. And I, I went there and I was so impressed. I couldn't stop talking about Rubicon because I thought it would, re, it would restore the reputation of the old Inglenook property again. Mm -hmm. And so when we were naming the restaurant, we went through many, many names. And Drew finally said, you're always talking about Rubicon. What, could we call it that? And I looked at him and I said, that's brilliant. Because it's all about Caesar crossing the Rubicon and uh, taking up a challenge that they were told was irrevocable and succeeding. Mm -hmm. So when Caesar crossed the Rubicon, uh, the, the Roman Senate declared war on him because he, he, there was a line of demarcation to keep troops out of Rome to mm -hmm. prevent the takeover by a general. Because they had that, that earlier, a century earlier, with Sulla, who would actually march on Rome and dissolve the Republic and became a dictator. So they, all these troops were banished from coming directly to Rome. And when Caesar crossed that, all the other troops then were bound to attack him. So I go, we're coming from, you're coming, I'm coming from Chicago. Tracy's coming from LA, you're coming from New York, all our friends in San Francisco say we'll be doomed, you don't do this, it's the wrong place, the wrong time, you'll never succeed. And I go, it's perfect, let's do it. So we, and then we, and they said, well, we have to get permission from Francis. I said, yeah, that's great, even better. So we both wrote to him, and I had already written to them in, 93, in 92 or, or 91 even, thanking them for the tour, and I was so inspired by what they were doing, and, and with Tony Soder, I knew they'd have the right path. And so I got a nice letter from Eleanor Coppola. I still have it somewhere. And uh, so when we made the name, Francis said, well, you can use a name as long as you may, if, I, if I can be a partner. Mm -hmm. So Francis became a partner. We already had Robert De Niro and Robin Williams. And uh, so that was one of Drew's ideas because he likes movie stars involved with his restaurants, especially back then he did. And uh, because he was just starting, he knew that would create buzz. So mm -hmm. not just a great chef and a great location, but great backers. Mm -hmm. And it, we were around for quite a while. Mm -hmm. Tell about your experience there. And, and you said you said you were, everyone said it was a wrong place, wrong time. Yeah. But it turned out not to be. So tell me about becoming a thing in San Francisco and, and, and the kind of growth of Rubicon. Well, I mean, we, we people had these uh, expectations that would be very glitzy, like. Uh, like we like we'd be like really overdone and overdesigned and very Hollywood. And instead, we had a very down-to-earth restaurant based on on knowing our farm sources and doing food that was very fresh, and having a very having a delicate balance of ideas that incorporated French you know French cooking techniques, but also had um, you know many, many other elements, I mean, modern elements that were m mainly what we'd call California at that time, mm -hmm. you know, it's known as California cuisine, which is inspired by, you know, Alice Waters and Jeremiah Tower and Mark Miller, who was still working in the East Bay at that time before he went back to, to, Air, to New Mexico and or in D.C., he opened a restaurant Red Sage in D.C. at the time. So there, were, there was this, this elements of just a young and vibrant uh, community that had, was a generation down from Chez Panisse and Jeremiah that was really exploring even more refined ideas in, in cooking. 
And so you, you saw this excitement. And Tracy was great at that. She was there uh, at the right time to do, she had worked with Elka just before that at the Miyako Hotel and had incorporated Japanese elements into her cuisine. And also, you know, working for Joaquin Spichal in LA at Bettina, she had a very good background in French technique. I mean, that was, the, you know, she's trained that way and had trained in France as well as a stagiaire. So there were, all, there were these elements coming together and it was very vibrant. And she came up with these very simple dishes that became a hit. I think the biggest dish that she had was a seared scallop on, on truffle mashed potatoes. And it was like, you know, everybody had to have that for three or four years, even after she left the restaurant. That's all they wanted. And the former, her former sous chef who took over her position said, I don't want to make that anymore. And she didn't want to make it anymore either. So I go like, but everybody wants it, you know? So she, they go like, well, we don't want to make it. And I said, well, you've got to do something, you know, just bring it back occasionally. You can't just say you're never going to do it. But you know, <laughs> chefs, they're very creative and they want to do what they want to do. So I have to respect that. So at what point did you, at some point you enter into the California wine industry. So tell me about that kind of process from some restaurateur into actually into the wine industry itself. Well, as I, you know, as I said, uh, I started making wine when I was 14. So I was always in interested in wine. And so I understood when people were making wine, what they were doing. And, uh, and so I, you know, I felt that it would be kind of fun to do it again. And my friend Daniel Jonas in New York said, well, we should have a negotiant label. You be in charge of the winemaking, you're out west. You, you do the blending or winemaking, whatever it is, and then I'll sell it. And that, that lasted about two years, not quite, because he had a conflict of interest with his other business, which was Jeroboam Imports. And I'd asked him when we started to sign off on that, but he thought, oh, no, the investors know about it. They're not going to care. But it turns out they did. So we did it for a couple of years, and then he, we just dissolved the company when the investors uh, were uh, complaining to him about the conflict of interest he had with importing wine. It was okay as long as I was making it, but then we, he, he bought a batch of, uh, of Syrah from Alain Graillot to bottle under our own label, which was called Du Chapeau, or Two Hats, which were both sommeliers, and then we were involved in wine production. So uh, that was in 1993. We did that from 93 to 96, basically. Started in 93 and 96, we dissolved. And then I created a company called Sarita, so all the time I was in the restaurant, I had my own wine company in a way. From the first year, I moved to San Francisco. And, and I would go there and I'd, I'd have a shift, especially in fall when it's getting busy, I'd have a shift at the restaurant and then I'd drive right to Napa and sleep in my car so that at 7 a.m. when the pickers came, I would be there. And often I pruned the vineyard for them because the people growing the grapes didn't want to prune the way I wanted to prune. And so I'd be there pruning, you know, uh, at Verasion to make sure I got rid of stuff that was behind and have a very nice even crop and I'd be there for the winemaking process and then I'd, I'd have to leave, I'd have to start early in the morning like 7 so I could get back to shift at 4. What? Is, oh. The cat. We have a cat. For those of you who, who don't see him, he's off camera and I hope he hasn't done anything untoward. He's, no, he's okay. just trying to. He's just trying to take the camera with him. It's all good. All right. Okay. <laughs> so you were. So at this point, you were growing your own. You had your own wine business, growing, growing your own grapes uh, with Sarita. Mm -hmm. Tell us about sort of that. Why? Why that? Why was Sarita something you wanted to do, and, and what did it evolve into? 
Well, I thought, you know, to be, uh, to really understand wine and to understand a region, you should make wine there. And I did it with, with Sarita, it was Cabernet Merlot and Cabernet Franc. I really loved Cabernet Franc, but I felt people were picking Cabernet too late and, and Merlot way too late. And Cabernet Franc, you know, that was, that was the one that probably in Napa and parts in some areas had the best balance because you could get these nice herbal flavors which everybody in the 90s was trying to get rid of in their wine. And I go like, but this is what it is. This is Cabernet Franc. That's what you like about Cabernet Franc. It's tobacco, it's, it's herbs, it's really delicious. But you, you know, but you have to crop it right. You have to have the right spot. Mm -hmm. It's a little fussier, I think, than Cabernet Sauvignon is. Mm -hmm. And also, I think Cabernet can be pushed far and still be satisfactorily Cabernet although I find it often it was too far. So I made wines that I thought were more European. I wanted to see, is it still possible not to make the wines that they made in the old days, which I thought were too green. Like when, when people say they pick a 12 and a half degrees alcohol potential, that's a formula. And I don't think you can, and no viticultural, no farm product can be farmed or picked by formula. You have to look at the fruit every year because every year you have different, you have different situations. And so if you're doing it by formula, then you're missing what you could be doing better. Mm -hmm. And so I always thought, well, every year it'll be a little different, but I would test the fruit. I would taste the fruit for evolution of tannins and phenol other phenolics in the skins. And I would also do analyses of you know, the pH and, the, and uh, the specific gravity or bricks. In the, and, and you would get an idea of what you were going to get you know, approximately. And it was always less than most of my neighbors. And I'd go, why are you waiting till it's 17% alcohol and then watering it back? You know, so you, you know, and, and they'd go like, well, it's not ripe yet. And I go like, well, it depends on what you want to make. You know, I, I don't want to make that. If you want to do that, you're making dessert wine or pruny wines or, or wines that are just so fruity that they have no sense of being from a place or the grape it's mm -hmm. made with. So you're, you're dictating very, very ripe flavors beyond what ripeness is. And I go like, you have to find the balance of your region. And, I, and Napa, frankly, you know, the old days, the 12.5% alcohol wines were less flawed, I think, than the wines they were making when they were watering back at 17 with all the technology, with all the spinning cones and all the reverse osmosis. Sometimes you're just manipulating something into a product. Mm -hmm. And you can get uniformity and you can get, maybe you can get the attention of some critics year after year and be 98-point wines because you can manufacture them. Mm -hmm. But that's not exciting in the long run. And so uh, I, th I thought in Napa, there's no place in California even that I would really like to grow Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, but it, I'm, in, I'm in San Francisco. There's kind of a time limit if I'm gonna do this the way I'm doing it. So it has to be Cabernet, Cabernet Franc, and some Merlot. And then I made, I made varietals, basically three varietals that were blended somewhat with each other. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they turned out to be really good, but I got really bad press from some of the critics because they said it's, uh, it's too un it's not ripe enough it's like and then 20 you know 15 years later 20 years later they're still great and you can go back and taste some of the wines that were supposedly great and they're dead so mm -hmm. I go like well they're really beautiful now but it's the the world doesn't have the same model that I had when I was starting out or than I do today which is you know you want to make wines that age mm -hmm. that are ageable and are balanced but uh, but on the other hand, you have to have them drinkable now because that's what the market demands. So you have to find a balance between those two things and it's not easy. The fortunate thing is today, the market has changed so dramatically from back then so that you can make a wine that's more uh, classic in structure with lower, not, not with lower alcohol, that's not the point. 
with the right amount of ripeness, with, with ripeness dictated by the place and the vineyard, mm -hmm. not ripeness that you say you mandate to be ripe or not ripe. That's mm -hmm. like saying to a pregnant woman, you're not ready to give birth yet. Stop, stop contracting. You know, it's not ready. You need two more weeks you know, or a month. Mm -hmm. Like, well, sorry. You know, and the vine is giving us these signals. They give it uh, not through pumping Pitocin through the body, but by other signals, other hormonal signers, sig sig uh, signals, by the senescence of the leaves and the canopy, by the, by the rise in pH, sudden rise in pH in the grapes. When it's doing that, it's done. It's not really going to evolve significantly after that, but you'll get dehydration, you'll get raisining, you'll get, definitely get rid of some herbal qualities if you have enough heat and, and, uh, and sun. Uh, but you know, if you want fruit that's live and balanced and, and has energy, you have to pick when the vine says it's ready. And sometimes that's too soon for what you may like, but, mm -hmm. or sometimes it's later. But, uh, but we do it when, that, when the pH rises so we don't have to acidify. And you get a m very natural product that reflects the place it's from and, and has flavors that are exciting. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a desire in there to make Pinot and Chardonnay, so I'm assuming that's what brought you to Oregon. Tell me about the process of getting into the Oregon wine industry. Well, you know, I think every sommelier, myself included, having won the title of best sommelier in the world in French wines, you know, you go, what's the best Pinot in the world? It's a place that doesn't even say Pinot. It's Burgundy, it's the Cote d'Or, it's a Premier Cru, Grand Cru vineyards. And because of that, you know, you have a certain prejudice, and there are certain wines I wouldn't want to make in the New World. I don't want to make a Riesling in the New World. I think we can make great Riesling in Oregon and Washington, too. Uh, we have the right latitude to do it if you find the right microclimate within some regions of, of Oregon and Washington. And Okanagan is even better, probably. It's closer to where Germany is. So you're getting all this sunlight, and in parts of Okanagan, though, it's too hot still, so you have to be in certain, certain places in Okanagan. Uh, to have it right too, but you can make great Riesling that is as good as German or you know or Austrian Riesling, uh, depending on the site. So, but I wouldn't want to do that because I can get there's a glut of German wine on the market at a very low price. I could not compete with that in terms of labor, in terms of the cost of the land, and mm -hmm. in terms of the farming. Uh, it's just not going to happen. And the same thing with Sangiovese in Napa. People plant Sangiovese and. Uh, that was a pretty money-losing proposition because you have the cheapest wine you can make in Napa from Sangiovese would probably be a $50 bottle of wine. So you're already competing with, uh, with Brunello in some almost, you know, you're mm -hmm. practically up there. So that's not a very good uh, plan. Plus, what can, and so in California, I think what they do best with the climate, especially in the North Bay, is you have Cabernet, you have the Cabernet varietals, the Bordeaux varietals. When you go south, if you're in the cooler zones like Santa Rita, you can, uh, you can also, if you're on the coast there, you can have a great area for that. And they have, they have uh, silex, you know, they have this uh, diatomaceous earth base, which is very, it's not the same as limestone, but it's similar. At least it has a lot of silica, mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. and it's, it's not the, necessarily all the calcium carbonate you'd like, but it's silica, at least it's, uh, it has more resemblance, it looks similar. And uh, <laughs> now you've gotten bold. <laughs> now, now you can all see the cat. We need, we need him. I, I, yeah, we need him. He's a former male. <laughs> and, um, but uh, he's guarding the winery. So, anyway, the um, anyway. So, where were we with the uh, 
the different vineyards in uh, the areas. Mm-hmm. So you're south coast. South, south, yeah, south coast, yeah. yeah. So south coast, you have the right climate. You have a longer hang time because there you have cool temperatures, but you don't have the sunlight. That's what people don't understand. In California, you don't have enough sunlight. You don't have enough sunlight because, uh, oh, he's not scratching it. Good. Anyway, uh, we don't have enough sunlight in California because it's too far south. If you're in the south, if you're in the central coast or towards you know south to San Diego, in San Diego you're in like uh, I, I looked it up once. You're in like near Tatooine, uh, Algeria, which exists. There is a Tatooine. And I go like, well, I guess they didn't make up every name for Star Wars, <laughs> but uh, it's not on another planet. And then there is, uh, and, and if you're in, uh, you know, Santa Barbara, you're probably like southern Spain mm-hmm. or, or, or Sicily. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, we're far, we're like, we're, we're not quite Germany. We're actually just south of Burgundy. We're in the very, if you take the latitude, we're at the very north end of Bordeaux, mm-hmm. and we're in the very north end of, of, the, of the Rhone. So we're in the very north village of the Cote Rotis zone. We're about 20 miles south of Lyon on latitude basis and 75 miles south of the town of Macon. So Macon is already between Macon and Lyon. You have Beaujolais, you have the Maconnais, you know, you have Puy Fuisse, you have all these names. And so we're about, we're so close to Bone, which is another 50 miles north of that or so, uh, that we have slightly shorter midsummer days than they do mm-hmm. and slightly longer midwinter days mm-hmm. by about 15, 10 to 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. But we have uh, almost 45 minutes to an hour each way, depending on where you are in California. So up to two hours, one and a half to two hours more. So it's not heat, it's sun. And that's what you want for phenolic evolution, for complexity of flavor. And because we have a moderate climate, you have, not to say we don't have hot days, but the climate overall is moderate. It's actually colder here in the Old Amity Hills than it would be in the Bone Station mm-hmm. over a 100-year period. Uh, you have lower alcohol. So you can have balanced classic wines here, a la Burgundy or the Northern Rhone or, or Bordeaux, Northern Bordeaux, depending. But Bordeaux is a hotter climate, so that's where you get more sugar accumulation. You get it from the heat cycles versus the sun. So, and that's... What's interesting, we, we just have the best plot. So I wouldn't have done Pinot unless I was back in Oregon because there's no climate in Washington even though we're about the same parallel. Uh, there's no climate in Washington that's really suitable for Pinot mm-hmm. or, Chard- or Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't say that too much because there are people who grow Chardonnay in Washington, my apologies. But, uh, but I think we just have a much better climate overall for it. And, uh, and then uh, you know, we couldn't grow Cabernet here in the northern Willamette Valley. Hmm. We could grow Syrah, but it would be Syrah like the northern Rhone. Hmm. So when you decided that that's what you wanted to do, how did you go about getting into Oregon, finding, finding the spot you wanted to be? Oh, well, that goes back to when I was a sommelier. I was, uh, in 1996, uh, Mark Tarlov, who was a frequent diner at the restaurant, our, rest, our affiliated restaurant in New York, Mon Rache, he loved sommeliers. He'd take them out for lunches at Chinese restaurants, and he'd bring a bunch of his wine collection, which included a lot of Rumier and Jaillet and uh, you know other producers. Uh, and and uh, they would they'd once a month go out to lunch with him. And then he came to do a sh- sh- he was a, a lawyer for the entertainment industry, intellectual properties basically I think. And he uh, and both he and his wife 
and they came out west frequently. But he also produced movies. He, his wife wrote scripts for movies, and he produced them. So they were shooting a film called Copycat with Sigourney Weaver in San Francisco, and he decided to get a, a hotel, the Mandarin Oriental, which is about two, three blocks away from my restaurant, and he did it deliberately. He came in the first night he was in San Francisco, he says, I'm going to be here almost every night, and I'm going to drink the Jaye off your list. And I go like, and the, and the Rumier, and I go like, okay, and I didn't realize that he really meant it. So every night he'd come and have a bottle of coasterie and, and a Rumier or a coasterie and a Jaye. It was on the movie budget, right? So he could drink what he wanted. And, um, and it wasn't expensive because at that time in 1995, 96, uh, I think I had Rumi on the list for $57 a bottle for the Lecra, and I had Jaye for like 125 or something. Some bottles are worth $20,000 today or 15. I mean, some ungodly amount of money. And, and even in New York at the time, he would have had to pay uh, quite a bit more than I was charging, maybe triple. So he just, I want to drink these every night. I said, finally, after like th two weeks of this, I go like, you know, you're in the West Coast. If you were in France and Burgundy, you wouldn't see a single bottle of Oregon Pinot or California Pinot or anything on, I want you at least to try some things. So he tried, um, I said, what should I try? I said, Oregon is the best shot. Willamette Valley, Eolamity Hills, I already knew. I love the Eolamity Hills above everything else. I said, in California, be either the western Sonoma coast, the real Sonoma coast, like near Occidental or Jenner, mm -hmm. like right there on the coast where Hirsch is. And then I said, in California, the other part would be Santa Rita Hills. But I said, there isn't a lot of Santa Rita Hills I would support yet, but I think the areas have promise. So he tasted a bunch of wine, and then he said, none of them taste like Burgundy. I said, but they could be with the right, the right person, maybe someone from Burgundy coming and farming it and knowing what to do with the grapes. So that created Evening Land 10 years later. That was in 96, and then 9-11 happened, and he got back to me saying, I really want to get out of New York. Is there a place I can buy in California where I can have a vineyard? And I said, well, in Sonoma, there's Occidental Vineyard is, I think, available. You could try it. I heard a rumor. And he, he wound up getting Occidental. But then four or five months after that, he's in Santa Barbara. He says, I can get a 100-year lease on this, proper, on this property in, uh, in Santa Rita Hills. And it's close to the ocean. It's nice and cool. And I go like, great. But what are you going to do with the property in Sonoma? That's a long distance. You can't haul grapes. Back. Where are you going to make the wine? You have two now. You have two regions. Are you selling the fruit? No, I want to make wine. I, I, I need a winemaker. So I, I gave him some, my, some references that I thought were pretty good at the time. One included Sashi Mormon. And then uh, who's now you know, involved, still involved with Evening Land. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, then I, you know, about six months after that, he's, in, he's at the IPNC in, in, at, at you know, Linfield College. And he says, I just talked to Dominique Lafon, and he wants to come and, and, and he's interested in making wine in Oregon with me. And I go like, and I go, but you don't have a vineyard, and what are you going to do with the California? And he goes, oh, but I, I think there's, there's, a, there's an auction now for a lease on Seven Springs Vineyard, and I can get that. And I go like, well, that's great. I said Seven Springs is the best vineyard in Oregon in my mind, but I said it's been, it could have own roots. It could have phylloxera. You have to have a vineyard specialist go and check it out because I was, I was in Rubicon, and I'm like, I can't come up there today because to, you're trying to sign this this week. You better have someone check it out. So two days later, he called me and said, we signed, the, we signed the, the lease. And I go like, so did you have someone check it out? No, it's, it costs the same as a condo on the Upper East Side. That's nothing. And I go like, 
Well, but you don't have to farm it. You don't have to farm the condo, but you have to farm <laughs> this. And if it's dying, then what do you do? Is your contract state something about the replacement costs? And you know, no. But he says he can get three ton. He gets three tons an acre. And I go like, good. So when I came, I I didn't run it. I was working for Francis at the time. By this time. I transitioned out of the restaurant full time and I was working as a, first in marketing for uh, Nibam Coppola mm -hmm. and then in 2005, he started this company in six. By five, I was already being asked to run uh, Rubicon Estate and be the gérant, a personal family agent. It's a French, tech, it's a French uh, word for a person who's like, you'd call him like the general manager or the president, it's hard to say, but basically it's a family, design, family business de designating a person who will run the company for the family, mm -hmm. so it's not like a corporation or a corporate structure. Mm -hmm. So I was the gérant, and uh, I said, well, I, you know, this is a historic property, I'd really like to be here a few more years, and you're just starting up, you know, maybe someday, I, I'm really excited about going back to Oregon, uh, you know, going to the Northwest. And, uh, sorry, a little cat humor here. The cat was climbing up three pallets of wine on the shrink wrap, and I was a little afraid he wouldn't be able to get down, but he did. Anyway, so uh, that's cat gymnastics. Uh, anyway, the, um, the, where were we with this? The, um, so Mark was just getting yeah, started. Mark, ready to Mark was just getting started. So I, what happened was I worked for Francis as the gerant there until 2010, and then I, I, I got to see one project through, which was uh, having restored the Inglenook Estate to being the center of the Napa Valley Wine Auction. That was the last thing I did, and then I left, and then I ran, came here to run Eveningland full time. But the, by then we had winery in Santa Barbara, and, they were, and we had a debate over where the fruit from the Sonoma property in Occidental had to go. And then we had 100 acres here for, for seven springs that we were leasing. So uh, I came in and I ran it. And when I came here, the very first trip I made, I looked across the road and I said, well, seven springs has always been the, my favorite vineyard, but we can see there's disease and phylloxera and it's going to have to be replanted again. And we have a bad lease on that on that score, we, we have to bear the full cost. I said, why don't we just buy the farm next door? It looks a little bit neglected, and let's, let's, uh, let's just plant that instead of replanting this. And then we can tell the owner that if he doesn't want to replant it, that's fine, but we're not gonna pay to replant his thing mm -hmm. you know, entirely. And, but they said, no, 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 you know, I, I le I, there was something happening and I left, they thought about it, but Mark left the company or was forced out. And, I, and then when he was forced out, I left uh, and, and went to do something else. But, but I had already negotiated for two years. The whole time I was at Evening Land here, I was negotiating with the farm family that owned it. But if you look at this hill, I'm the only vineyard on this side. On the other side is where all the vineyards are. And then you, when you get above Hopewell, the town of Hopewell, two miles north here, there are a few more vineyards. But there's almost nothing in between, except maybe Domain, Domain Serene bought a property down below in the 90s. But there was a reason that this is this this side of the hill. All my neighbors on this on this side here belong to the church in the local community. M many of them are Mennonite or the descendants of Mennonites. And the largest Mennonite uh, school, theological school in the West, is right straight across this field. And I can see it. I, I can see the trees around the mm -hmm. around the, the seminary. So they all wanted to keep bad influences out of the neighborhood. And uh, so 
they didn't want to sell to people making wine or growing grapes for wine or anything like that. Uh, but so it took two years to convince them, and I talked to them. And I, helpful was that my dad worked in the Pike Place Market where they sold stuff. Mm -hmm. and I wound up buying it, and um, and the result the result was I was going to grow fruit and sell fruit. I was just going to be a farmer. But uh, Dominique Lafon crossed the road. He said, "Oh, you got it." And I go, "Yeah, I'm, I'm planting it this year. I'm tearing it up, uh, ripping it up, getting the roots of the trees. The, kind of there were some Christmas trees that were dying. There was uh, there were prune orchard and plum and, and cherry, prune plum and cherry on the lower slopes that were uh, had some fungal disease by this time. They'd been grafted 50 years earlier, and they were at the end of their life. So they had to be replanted. And the farmers were now close to 80." And for two years, though, I, I talked to him, and finally I got it. And then I planted it, and then people started coming out of the woodwork. Everybody from Evening Land said, can we make your wine? Can we be there? And then uh, and I said, no, no, I'm just going to sell fruit. And then Dominique came, and he said, you know, I'd really like to make wine here. And I go like, well, that's good news and bad news for me, I guess. It's <laughs> tempting, and of course, I'll, I'll, I think it's worth considering. But then I have to raise more money than I've ever had. You know, to, uh, you know buying the farm and planting it was one thing, but making wine is a whole other world of debt. <laughs> so, uh, but we found a banker willing to bankroll it. Uh, it was uh, farm credit, basically, and uh, some help from the Silicon Valley Bank. And uh, we found, uh, I thought it'd be 20 investors, but we found almost 60 investors who helped make this possible. And there was a good group of investors. They're very good people, including like the older brother of a former girlfriend of mine from high school. Uh, and uh, he raised quite a bit of money from, he has an investment company, venture capital company. And then there was another company in Seattle that helped raise money. Uh, they were introduced to us uh, by Silicon Valley Bank. And then a lot of, a lot of friends, uh, you know, and people that knew us from the wine industry have, have come in and invested too. So. Was like Field of Dreams, you know, the movie. I I just wanted to plant a vineyard, and I just I got a whole winery. <laughs> I, when I look at this, I go like, this wasn't part of my dream. Like, how did I get this? It's like it's too big. <laughs> I wanted a small little project. <laughs> I guess things you, happen. You got this instead. I got this instead. It's pretty nice. So the, you, we talked a little bit before we started interviewing today about the the, the, the building of this and the, and the designs. So take us through a little bit of that. How you chose some of the features here and the, and the size and, and kind of what you were going for. What, what kind of wines you wanted to produce? Well, we, we have, you know, I planted, I developed 70 acres. This is 146 acre property. So I, the, the lower part, there's still about 10 to, well, maybe 15 acres that could be planted to fairly good quality. But the best quality I saw in the volcanics, the pure volcanics up on the hill. So that's what I planted. And in fact, it's bigger than I thought it would be because when we started planting, we realized that the soil was better still, you know, it was still good going down farther than across the road at Seven Springs. So we have, we have a, a much bigger area that has what, you know, we called it Seven Springs, La Source, and Sumum, you know, the middle blocks there. It, we do, we go across the top there, but then it goes down lower a little bit on our hill. And so we have practically jory soil down to the bottom. We, at the very bottom on the north side, we have a little wood burn soil over the jory. But basically, we have the same conditions for dry farming and for more mineral qualities and more balanced expression between fruit and mineral than, uh, than other vineyards around the area. Uh, it, you know, pretty equivalent to Seven Springs, uh, but maybe where we are a little bit better for what I like, which is this Gelderman soil. When we started Eveningland, we didn't even know what Gelderman soils were, but in the meantime, our soils have been reclassified 
and uh, Pedro Parra, the world eminent uh, soil specialist for vineyard soils, he said that, and taking a tour of the Lamette Valley at the time, he said uh, the best two sites, well, he said the best sites in Oregon are in the Olamity Hills, and the best two sites in the Olamity Hills are Seven Springs and Larry's. And, and then he, he had already had 80 acres elsewhere in the Olamity Hills with the, that was chosen before Pedro got involved. And then, um, you know, about six months, eight months later, they bought Witness Tree, which is on the other side of Seven Springs, or as close as you can get for mm -hmm. property. And um, so I'm sure he's done the study, so they must have these Gelderman soils too, because he always talks about the gravels. So my, my, to my appreciation of these sites was based totally on my experience starting in 1985 when the first crop came off of Seven Springs, and I was privileged to taste that in a David Adelsheim version in 1987 in, in uh, Chicago. And I called him up and I said, David, that's the best wine you made. When did you get the vineyard? And he hesitated and then said, well, it's not mine, but it is a good site. I plan on getting it again. And he said, by the way, it's the first crop. I go like, what? I go, that's an interesting site. And it, I said, maybe it'll drop. You know, we're going like, maybe, it'll, maybe the quality will drop. It'll go through a big period and then kind of diminish. But it never did. And so I didn't know that also Bethel Heights made a reserve wine from Seven Springs that year. And uh, St. Innocent, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, there were a lot of wineries involved in that. And it was like really crazy that, um, that, that, you know, I was able to get a farm next door that had not been, that for 40 years, Tony Soder tried to buy it when he started his project. Uh, Lynn Penner-Ash tried to buy it. Uh, uh, a lot of people tried to buy it. And, and I was in the right place. They were older, mm -hmm. so I'm 40 years later, so instead of being in their 40s, they were, well, in their late 30s or something, they were, they were in their late 70s. And by the time I bought it, he was over 80. And so, you know, mm -hmm. I was in the right place at the right time. Plus. One of their granddaughters had worked at Brooks already, and they realized, well, people in wine aren't all wild partiers <laughs> that will disrupt our, our moral, moral fabric of the community. Sure, sure. So <coughs> tell me about the, your decision uh, on, you talk about the, the soils here, and you, and you farm organically, biodynamically, as I understand. Tell me about your decision to do that and, and what you've seen as a result. Well, when I ran Coppola's winery, uh, you know, I'd always been interested in organic farming. I thought it was important, but, I, but as I worked with, uh, we had a consultant that came in at the, at the suggestion of a friend of mine, Frederic Angeret. He said, well, you should talk to, you should talk to Stéphane de Renoncourt, who has his own winery in Bordeaux, but is a, uh, knows vineyards and knows how to make wine, and he has a good touch. But uh, so we hired him at Coppola, and he had all these ideas about biodynamic farming, too, that I, I, was, I had already been familiar with from uh, Valeria Huneus. Valeria, when she, before she planted Quintessa, she had given me a tour of the vineyard, and that was in 1989. And, and she talked about her idea of how she would plant, and she would have an insectarium where she'd replant the native uh, grasses and flowers that were in Napa Valley before white people came and farmed, and that would attract the insects that would kill the riparian insects that cause uh, Pierce's disease. And so it was amazing. I mean, she had this whole thing, and she kept forest around the vineyard, and the songbirds would live in the forest, and the hawks, if they went out, the hawks in the, in the trees there would find them and eat them, so they'd come back, and they'd eat the insects in the forest where the riparian insects would be, and 
they wouldn't go, they wouldn't be able to go out in the vineyard without uh, consequences, so they'd stay away. So it was just I go like that's a beautiful thing, and she said we're going to keep cattle so that we can have our own manure, so our biome is returned to the same place. We're not bringing in compost from somewhere else. And you're going that's a pretty thorough idea, and you go like it sounds like a fairy tale. I hope it works. Well, that was in 1989, but by not, by 2000 and and. Uh, when was it? In 2006, when I was taking over as a gerant of, 2005 actually, into five, as a gerant of, uh, of Rubicon Estate, which we had renamed. I was a board member from 2001 on, but, and we, I was uh, instrumental in helping that get changed from uh, Nibam Coppola to Rubicon Estate and splitting the company. And so I already was very familiar from 1989 on with the idea of biodynamic. But then when Stefan came to work for us at Rubicon, uh, it, estate. It was it was amazing what he brought in, and we did these experiments with mowing grasses and keeping them. Uh, you know, because before that we were disking everything. It was naked ground and then vines and just dirt and vines, and you're going like. And it was because of the competition for water mm -hmm. that these surface plants would have. And uh, when what he demonstrated was the temperature of the soil was 10 degrees to 15 degrees cooler with the mulch on it, because it was a darker soil and it would pick up heat. So you have more water stress and more vine stress on the fruit and the vines. And if you kept this, this mown cover crop on the ground, it would, you could put your hand underneath there and it would be cool. Plus, th there are lots of insects in there which were beneficial in helping maintain the biome in the soil. So it, it, it actually really helped encourage growth. And uh, it was a good way of farming because you didn't disrupt the topsoil. And you know the older farmers that we had, Rafael Rodriguez, who had worked there since the thir 40s, uh, for John Daniel Jr., the descendant of Gustav Niebaum, who founded Engelmann. He worked there as a in at first as a worker in the vineyard, and then as the vineyard manager. He was the first Mexican-American vineyard manager in Napa, and uh, he and he started not even be able to hold a power tool because only the white people were allowed to hold power tools back then, and they had to use spades and so shovels. So it was quite a change that he saw. When he saw this vineyard, he goes, I said, what do you think of this farming? And he goes, it looks dirty. <laughs> well, because he said, all this stuff, this weeds and stuff, it looks dirty. It's like you're not doing anything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I said, but this is the idea behind it. He says, I don't care. It just looks dirty. <laughs> I would never, I would be scolded if I had done stuff like this. So I go like, well, it's a, it's a shift in paradigm of how you farm going, and it's an idea of keeping an intact cover crop and pathways for oxygen into the soil. And in the end, you need less input from fertilizers, you need less compost, you know, you, and what is compost? But compost is returning bacteria to the soil, but you're returning it from a dairy uh, to a farm instead of keeping, keeping the cattle there and returning the same biome to encourage the uniqueness of the site. And so the nice thing is here, we never really did anything damaging to the biome. We were surrounded by other, other properties that, and forest land that mm -hmm. was undisturbed, mm -hmm. and we have wetlands here. So there's a big supply of that, plus we have lots of animals roaming the vineyards because we don't kill them, and we, don't, uh, we encourage them to thrive. Mm -hmm. The only ones I need to discourage a little bit more are the voles, moles, and gophers. But that's only because in the last 150 years, we people, our civilization, has killed off all its natural predator, which would be snakes, because we have a fear of snakes. So the gopher snake, that's my big, next big project, but I have to get past the objections of Thomas, because he doesn't like snakes. But I go, look, I don't, like, I don't want to cuddle up with a snake at night either, but this is their habitat, and they are, it's called a gopher snake. 
It's not because it loves and protects gophers. It's because it eats them. And, and even if it can't eat that many at once, it's like having a cat in the winery. You don't, it doesn't have to go kill mice all the time. The mice see a cat there. They don't want to be there. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a hostile environment. And when the hawks and the owls kill the mice, they don't even have that vague idea what killed them. They're just, where did Joe go? He's, he was there a second ago, and now he's gone. You know, he's gone. The, a snake lives in their habitat. It goes in their dens, and then they are very aware that there's a predator. Mm -hmm. So it's a different thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's not just what they eat, but it's the, the, ta the, the, the habitat, the, the stress in the habitat for the prey. So mm -hmm. I think that it's, it's something we have to worry about. I need a herpetologist, so if any herpetologist sees this and I haven't, had a, ha haven't gotten someone to help advise us on how to do this properly, I, I, we need one. I, I know I have the right environment because I've studied this because I go, it's the same in Napa, but they're, they're rattlesnakes. Mm -hmm. So we have a big problem with, with ground squirrels there. Mm -hmm. They undermine everything. And here we have a problem with voles and gophers and moles, but the gophers and the voles are really pretty destructive. So I go, if you introduce snakes again, and here they're not poisonous and they're shy. So what do they want? They want a big pile of rock, mm -hmm. which we have. We have f four piles of rocks. We have one right by a little spring. In fact, it's covering the source so it doesn't get trampled on. And uh, that's what they love. They need water and they need rocks. We got plenty of that. Why would they leave? Mm -hmm. you, know, you can't keep a wild animal where you want it, but this, is, this would be a perfect home, mm -hmm. so a perfect habitat. So I think we can be successful, but we have to try it. That'll be, I hope, I hope sometime this year, but it may be next. Mm -hmm. So as you've gone from, as you, as you got talked into making wine here and building this facility, uh, tell me about the, the process of starting making your own wines, uh, building this brand. Uh, what, what kind of wines are you trying to create? How are you fitting into the market? Like how has that gone as, as, since you started making wine here? I want, well, even starting with evening wine, I just wanted to make wine that I thought reflected the place because I believe that Oregon has a terroir. There are sites in Oregon that have terroir that is exceptional and will be different than Burgundy, but if you make the wine by some sort of formula that, or an idea that man should dominate nature, which is what basically what almost any American-trained winemaker has in mind, is that you're never going to succeed. So you have to let the grapes dictate the vineyard site and then what, how it's grown dictate the flavors. So I'm not trying to make a kind of wine. I wanted to see what kind of wine could be grown here. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole point. When you ask a European winemaker what makes their wine so special, they don't say, oh, I have this special technique. I, I, can't, I can't talk about this technique because if I give it away, I'll lose my advantage over everybody else. Or, and, it, or, and they certainly would not say in Burgundy, oh, the secret of my Chardonnay is batonnage, or it's my, the secret of my, my, my Chardonnay or my, you know, my Chassagne Monrachet is the barrel I use. They don't talk about that, nor do they talk about how much whole cluster they use. They say, well, we favor more whole cluster in this area, and they, fa they don't. You know? But basically, it's not, you can be in the same place, the same, farming the same vineyard, and one, be one winemaker says, I'm making it 100% whole cluster, and the other winemaker says, I'm 100% destemmed, and they both make great wine, and they will tell you the reason is that that's the vineyard. They're getting the flavors from the vineyard, and there are very few New World trained winemakers, and now even European-trained winemakers who have that sensibility because they go to school and they get a degree and they feel they know how to make wine because they know the chemistry, they know, but frankly, that's the least interesting part of wine. That gets you to a sound wine that won't spoil. Mm -hmm. but, and, that, and too much knowledge can be a dangerous thing because you may believe you can do anything with it. But at some point, you push your fruit beyond what it really wants to be, and then you're making a product that reflects your, 
your ideas and your style instead of something that's more exciting that's an interplay between between human the human mind uh, the, and uh, and and thought and nature and that's what makes all wine truly interesting is not that it's naturalist that doesn't happen we try to make our wine as naturally let nature dictate as much as possible but growing a vineyard isn't natural what part of having a vineyard is natural it's not mm -hmm. Just from the very basis, how you farm, there are thousands of decisions to make when you farm. Nothing is natural because you have to make a choice. There's human choice every step of the way. When you decide, when you pick, that's a human choice. But you, if you have a sensitivity that what nature does is more important than what you do, at least you have that respect for what nature is giving you, that you can reflect a site-specific flavor that you can get in Oregon or Burgundy or Washington, whatever it is, because you've already thought about what nature, what, what would work best here for this natural environment, for the heat accumulation, for the sunlight exposure, for the varieties I'm thinking of using. And then you may have to experiment a little bit in a new region to see, well, what works better? Where do I get the best balance of nature and man that, that makes it exciting and, and unique? Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make a unique product that I don't know what the result will be in the long run. I didn't. I mean, frankly, when we started eating that, I thought, well, it'll make great wine, but will anybody buy it? It may have absolutely no commercial success because most American wines in, in 1996, when I came up with the idea with Mark Tarlov, and in 2006, when Mark started the company, the kind of wines that were popular were 16, 17% alcohol wines, some of which were watered back to 15 and a half, and they were very pruney, and especially Pinot was just so, they talk about the great Burgundian Pinots at the time, and I'd go from different really top wineries in California, I'd go like, they're great young, but they don't have the structure to age, they're, they're very ripe, and they may say they taste like Burgundy because they use botanage, I go, but I don't think anybody in Burgundy really talks about botanage being important. You know, in fact, it turns out that botanage is a Hail Mary attempt to fix a bad wine that didn't finish fermentation. That's when they use botanage, and some smart guy thought, oh, we, don't, you do, we haven't done botanage in the U.S., maybe that's what makes it better. So you, all of a sudden, every, in the 90s, every winery said, I'm making Burgundian Savoy, I'm using botanage. And those, many of those wines were great young, but tired quickly, because they oxidized them. And that's the point, people in Burgundy don't want to use it because it oxidizes and tires the wine. They do it if they have a stuck fermentation and they need to get the lees up into the wine again to re reactivate them. So, I, I don't know, it's a, I'll probably get some hate mail after this interview, but you know, <laughs> it's the truth, sorry. <laughs> so tell me what you've seen then from the fruit on your vineyard. Is it what you were hoping for when you bought the site? No, it's much better. No, I mean, nothing about this project followed my idea because it was just much bigger and better than I ever thought. I mean, first of all, when we started evening, I thought we'll have a product that'll be very interesting, but no one will really want it here, and people in Europe will like it, but they don't buy American wines. And then, you know, by the time I, I ran it for a couple of years, you know, we were like, we're selling wine in Europe, we're selling wine in Japan, we're selling wine all over the United States. You know, everyone loves it. You know, it was, uh, Dominique would take it home and brag to his friends by putting it in blind tastings with, with uh, white burgundy, especially, uh, which tends to have a closer flavor profile than our Pinots do. To, to Burgundy, and so they'd guess they they'd go like, well, where is it? Is it from Chassagne, or is it Merceau? No, then they uh, it could be from Corton Charlemagne because there's a lot of there's some other it, it's, it tastes like that maybe a little bit. It's a little richer. That's because his friends in Merceau didn't drink a lot of Corton Charlemagne because that's too far north from them, and so they were guessing regions that were that were great vineyard sites. 
but they couldn't agree. And so then, then he'd pull out the evening land, uh, you know, zoom them out of the bag, and they go, what? And then after a while, they figured it out. So be, but he, they still think it's great. Hmm? I mean, they, they all love it. That's why so many people from France are coming to Oregon now, is because they see they get a very similar, it's, it, the, the growing cycles are almost identical. In fact, the harvest dates overlap, and, and sometimes they're a little ahead of us. Like this year, they'll be way ahead of us, and sometimes they're after us. Um, and so there's overlap and they can understand the growth cycles here in a way they can't in California because in California you have bud rake in February or, or late February, early March may be done in the central coast and then you can pick until late November, I mean late October or even into November depending on where you are and that's because they have less heat accumulation than, than Burgundy and they have less sunlight. Mm -hmm. So they need this longer hang time just to accumulate the amount of phenolic evolution mm -hmm. and uh, you know and and then then they have to pick at the right time too, which is a harder thing for many people. But they're learning. I think people in California, I think uh, Rajat Parr has done a good service with the In Pursuit of Balance idea. It was a little dogmatic, but it had an effect, I think. And it was a good idea at the right time, especially mm -hmm. helped with a shift in, in, uh, in paradigm about what makes a good wine. Mm -hmm. So why the name Lingua Franca? Well, that, that goes back to my mother again, in a way. And um, so, my mother knew a lingua franca, so when I was a kid, I, uh, my mother taught, knew 11 languages, so she had taught Latin and French as a child in Romania, but in, but in her village you needed four languages at least even to go to market, because there were four major uh, groups of people living in this town in, in Transylvania, which was disputed between Hungary and Romania, but before 1918 it all belonged to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, so the Austro-Hungarian Empire dictated that, that where my mother grew up was part of Hungary. But after the First World War, Romania was able to get Transylvania. So then she grew up, she was born in the same house as her older brothers and sisters, but she was born in Romania and they were born in Hungary. And so, but so you had to know Hungarian, you always, before the split, after the First World War, they all had to know Hungarian, Romanian, and then were Jewish, so they, had to, they knew, they learned Hebrew as kids and, and Yiddish, which they spoke, that's four, and then, when it was in Romania, you learned Latin and French. So she knew seven as a child. And before the war, she taught, she was 19 or something, she taught other kids, you know, younger than her to Latin and French. Hmm. So, and she loved, you know, part of French, when you study French and you're a girl, especially in 1928 or something, you're gonna learn French cuisine and how to cook French sauces. So that was her background in knowing that. Plus she knew Hungarian, because where she grew up, she knew Hungarian Romanian dishes. My dad's from Austria, another part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so she knew, she had to learn how to make Viennese specialties and Bohemian specialties from my grandmother. So anyway, we've run out of tape, I'm sure, by this time. Close. <laughs> We're doing, doing just fine. Right. Um, so lingua franca then means? So she, so lingua franca, she learned Esperanto. Her brothers and sisters in this farming community, by the way, they made wine too, but I didn't learn that until my mother was 90. So, which is odd because I'd been the best sommelier in the world. But I kind of guessed that there may have been a wine connection by her family name, which is Weinberger, uh, which means a vigneron in French, or a wine grower, we'd say, you know, we don't use that term French, but a wine grower. So very much to the idea that I love of growing your wine, you don't make it. And uh, anyway, so, uh, her older brother wanted to do, he, they were into global world peace through understanding, and they thought one way to that is Esperanto. So the oldest brother taught all the siblings, the nine kids, Esperanto as they grew up. 
And uh, so my mother had all these Esperanto books and stuff that she, dictionaries and from, uh, you know, Esperanto into English, whatever, and Esperanto books. And I never, I never really, you know, I never really understood those languages. I wanted to be an American. But, but as I grew up, I came to appreciate what they were doing more and more. And I wound up having a degree in comparative literature. So I go like, when my wife said, what if we call it lingua franca? I go like, perfect. Because I go, the idea of world peace through wine, I like that. That's, that's my next ad campaign, world peace through lingua franca, which maybe you could take it two ways. Lingua franca is really designed to bring people from different cultures together to enjoy an aesthetic, in the case of wine, enjoy a common aesthetic pleasure that can, they can build respectful relationships across cultural barriers that, that shouldn't be that significant because we're all human beings. And I think wine is a good way to facilitate that. Uh, Esperanto was a failed attempt. That language Esperanto didn't work so well because it was created in the 1890s, and the 20th century wasn't very peaceful. So I don't think it had much effect. <laughs> but wine, I think, has more of an effect. And in fact, in our project, we have investors from Japan, from England, from France, from all over North America, and, and I think one from China. So yeah, one from China for sure. So. We have an, a multinational group. They all love wine, and they all can come here together. Well, we have also a, a per, person of East Indian descent, you know. So uh, I, it's amazing, you know, how people love wine, and they can come together, and they don't talk about how much they distrust or dislike the other tribe that they're not from. I'll just call it tribalism. It's modern tribalism. And you go, like, we're all, we all have the same mother, basically. So it's a, Unless we want to go kill our brothers, then we should try to live with them instead. That's awesome. That's an awesome answer. So lingua franca, world peace through wine. Love it. And we farm that way too. We farm that way too. So if you look at our labels, we have uh, the idea that we're exploring terroir in Oregon. You know, we're not we're not here to dictate what how the wine is made. We're here to explore the terroir of Oregon, like adventurers. And the idea is that you know we're in the 16th century. If you if you look at my wine labels. In the 16th century, people navigated by the stars. Mm -hmm. And so our, our core wines have this uh, label. Maybe I should pull one out from behind me. So in the 16th century, you know, we we're here to explore the terroir of Oregon. In the 16th century, when people came across the ocean to explore the new world, uh, they had these stellar maps you know, that, that they guided themselves with. They knew where the stars were, but they thought the stars were fixed and that they all you know, they rotated around the Earth. The Earth was the center of the universe, and the Europe, Northern Europeans were the center of the Earth. They were the dominant masters of the world. And when they came to a new place they hadn't been to before, they owned it. So that was the, this is what happened in the past. But today, we know the, uh, superimposed on that is image, are images from the Hubble spacecraft that were interpreted by the artists who created the, these graphics. I, they were already done. It's Talmadge Doyle. She's a professor at, o, at, Oregon, at University of Oregon in Eugene and uh, in art. And she had these at home. She makes these copper plates, which these are taken from. And she had a whole series of celestial maps. And I go, that's perfect for our label. So today you have these images of, of, the, of the cosmos. And in that cosmos, we're not the center of anything. You know, we're, we're a speck of dust on a tiny ball of, of iron, basically, mm -hmm. in the middle of a vast uh, infinite universe. So there's no center. We have to, if we, this, this is so precious, this tiny speck of dust. We should take care of it better. We should have more peace, you know, more understanding. And we have to take care of the earth we're on also. That, that leads us to the organic and biodynamic farming that we, we insist on 
from anybody we buy food from than we do for ourselves. Because otherwise you're damaging, you take one part of the biosphere out of it, you're damaging the whole biosphere. Let's say I decided we have too many voles that are killing vines, you know, that we lose maybe 2% of our vines every year to the voles. What if, I, what if I poison them? Well, if I poison them to kill them, guess what? I'm poisoning the owls and the hawks that I love nesting here that keep the rodent populations down. So now I'm in a cycle of I have to poison it all the time. And then, I'll, and then if they should be eaten by another predator, that, that predator will die. If it's not a hawk or an owl, it mm -hmm. could be a fox or a coyote. So I'm killing all the life around me that c creates the balance of nature that I want. And fortunately, it's still preserved. So we, we still have all these animals. We have rabbits sprouting up in spring, and then the foxes show up a little bit later, a month later, and then the rabbits are gone, and then they the foxes move on maybe to the next field. And the coyotes come, and they take care of other animals, you know, and the hawks take, and, you know, the hawks and the owls the owls are good at catching mice, you know, voles, but we need a lot of owls, you know. As I said, the poor animal doesn't even know what took them away, you know. It's not a threat until they're dead, so. So what's in the future? Everything, like you say, to this point for Lingua Franca has been kind of a happy accident. So tell me what's coming as you look 10 years down the road for, for Lingua Franca. I think a lot more happy accidents. I don't know. You know, I learned long ago, I get people ask me how they can become a sommelier, how they can become a master sommelier, and I go like, well, uh, do you want to be a sommelier? What, why do you want to be a sommelier? And, and, and they go, well, you know, I want to have a TV show, or I want to be, you know, I want to, I can, I, I don't have to work in a restaurant anymore, I become a master, I can go, I can make wine, or I can sell wine for somebody else, or I can start a wine shop. And I go like, then you really don't want to be a sommelier, and it's going to be, I don't know why you want to be a master, you know? You know, I said, you have to love what you're doing. And to me, I didn't seek to become a man. I was actually enrolled in the master sommelier program without, against my will, honestly. It was another thing that happened by accident. I think the most important thing people have to remember in life is that you have to study and study what you love, do what you love, follow it because you'll never be bored with it. You'll always expand your knowledge. And, and you'll love so much what you're doing, it won't matter that you don't make enough money from it. Because what, what's, how, who's wealthier? Some miserable guy looking over spreadsheets and trying to get the last penny out of this line. Maybe that's what they want to do. It's possible. That's maybe their heart. That's what they love doing. But if you don't love doing that, then it's, a, it's, it's torture. Hmm. You know? And to do a job because someone says, well, you'll make some money doing that, but you have no proclivity for it is like torture every day of your life. And I have always done what I loved, whether it was science or literature or music or wine. I, I followed it. And the nice thing is when you do that, opportunities open up because there, there's always an opportunity in life that you didn't foresee. So my whole career is an unforeseen opportunity. I was going to be, for years, that was what I wanted to be. Uh, first, I wanted to be a chemist and a biochemist, and I realized, well, that wasn't going to work. And then for a brief period of time, for like 10 years, I thought I'd be a professor. and. Um, and I go like, well, there are no more jobs for professors anymore. And also, there are all this politics around it now. Why don't I just pursue this thing a little longer until I finish my dissertation and then see what happens? And I just never finish the dissertation then because I go like, this, this is working. I don't, when it comes crashing down on me, I won't have another career. I don't know what I'll do. Maybe I'll have to go work in a vineyard or something <laughs> somewhere. But, but you know, that was that was not foremost in my mind. The foremost thing was that this is amazing. What an opportunity to learn more about wine and to get involved. So it's, you have to just be open to, to opportunity and to, 
take the chances that you think are interesting and not say, no, I was really going to do this. This is a, not part of my goals, mm -hmm. if it really speaks to you. Mm -hmm. So that's the most important advice I can give. You know, if you want to be a sommelier because you want to be famous and wealthy, don't do it. You can be a, if you want to be famous and wealthy, uh, I, I don't know. They often aren't. They don't often don't go together unless you can be a great movie star. But I can tell you, having worked with movie stars, it's not the most pleasant life either to be accosted by thousands of people you don't know every day of your life and who think they know you because they saw you in a movie that they loved. Mm -hmm. And and mm -hmm. so, my my uh, my I, I've been able to keep to my goal not being known that well and uh, just doing what I love. Mm -hmm. And I don't have any need for success or publicity. Except for the wine, of course, because I have to sell it. <laughs> it's a, yeah. So tell me about the Oregon wine industry that you you obviously were familiar with it from very early on. Yeah. Uh, tell me about your impressions of it as it's grown up, uh, especially as you've been a part of it, and what you see for the future here. Yeah. Well, I've been a part of it since 1979, really, because in 79 there was the Enological Society of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, tasting, which was the big event for the wine growers of, of, of Oregon, period, mm -hmm. before there were any sub-AVAs sub or anything. So I, I was a judge, and because I was a judge, I got to meet, you know, I got to meet uh, people like Richard Summers and Charles Curry and David Lett and David Adelsheim and, and a lot of people like the Knut, Knutson and Erath, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is now just Erath, it was Knutson and Erath. I visited them in 1981, I think, finally. Uh, no, there's, there's great wine growers back then. There were great people who brought ideas from California or elsewhere to try to make wine in Oregon. And they thought Riesling, of course. Back then, no one thought the Northwest could produce red-fruited wines at all because it was too cold, too wet. You'd be lucky if you could make white wine. In Washington State, too, which is so dry in the East, Walter Clore, who's now the sainted Walter Clore, his advice was grow Cascade. If you're going to grow red grapes, grow Cascade. They didn't call it Cascade. They called it Lemberger. Lemberger is a German variety that is similar in, like, pro, in, in morphology, the big grapes. It looks sort of like Gamay, but it's not as elevated as Gamay even. And uh, because it had the name Lemberger, it sounded too much like Limburger, which people would turn their noses up at. So they decided to rename it Cascade, because Cascade is Northwest. <laughs> and so, you know, St. Michelle and Associated Vintners, which is now Columbia Crest, and all these other wineries in Washington started making, they made Riesling and Chenin Blanc by the bucketfuls, by, there were thousands of these from small farmers to bigger adventures. And then, uh, and I should know, because I was a judge for the Central Washington State Fair one year at the urging of Daryl Cordy from California. I don't know why he was there. We, I think in one morning I tasted 250 not very well-made Rieslings that were, that smelled like the, the rubber-made garbage pails they were fermented in, basically. They didn't use anything that was food grade. So it was a different era. That was 19, when was this? Probably 78, 79, again, when I was still a judge for the Northwest Unilangible Society. But, you know, things have changed. But back then, that's what they thought they could grow. And there were no red wines except Cascade. And then finally in the late 70s, around, around that time, 78 to, I think, was it 78? 77, actually. I think it was the first vintage of St. Michel Cabernet Sauvignon that they brought uh, Andre Telechev in mm -hmm. to town for. So that things have changed in Washington and Oregon. Back then in Oregon, people were starting in the 60s, like David Lett, 
and, and, and Charles Curry brought clones in, and Charles Curry brought clones in from Alsace and, and, and Vadensville because he thought it's more like Switzerland and Alsace than it is Burgundy. And then, you know, and David brought in uh, Pomard from California. And uh, so there was, these things were starting, but it was still very small. And there was far more Riesling and Gewürztraminer. That was a big thing back then, Gewürztraminer. And no Pinot Gris. You know, the Pinot Gris came later in the late 70s. Uh, again, you saw maybe, I think the first vintage I had of Pinot Gris was Iris. And, and that had re-fermented before it was delivered to me. I mean, at first I had one vintage that was good, the next vintage was, was re-fermenting in the bottle. So it was just an attempt to get rid of the Chardonnay they had planted already because most of it couldn't, they didn't know how to grow it. Mm -hmm. And they were, it was the wrong clones back then. Mm -hmm. So even the Chardonnay didn't ripen properly. Uh, it was cooler, a little cooler back then when summers were rainier in general than they are today and less heat accumulation. Plus they had a clone from California that was adapted already to California climate and, sure. and growing seasons, it just didn't do so well here. Today, some of those plantings are good. After 30 years of being in sight, you know, they've developed. But, uh, but the worst thing about Oregon back then was the farming. So it wasn't the winemaking, because people could figure out how to make wine in a, in, a, in a way that was very traditional, because they didn't have a lot of fancy equipment, and they weren't going to get spinning cones, and they weren't going to get all sorts of, they were going to do reverse osmosis, and it wasn't even that common in California back then. But they, so they made wines with whole cluster, they didn't need destemming because you'd need a machine to do that. And they picked when they thought, when they had to because they were lucky if they got 12.5% alcohol wines back then because of the rainy season coming in already. So if they were 125 that was fully ripe. If they were 13, that was like a bonus big year. Uh, but today it's a little different and they can go farther. But back then they, they were happy. Mm -hmm. And so you see like the first vintage of Seven Springs in 85, was 12.5% alcohol and at a pH of 3.2. And so when people, when we made our first wines and people said, you're picking too early, or oh, you're in the early thing, I said, no, you're picking too late. If you look historically, and the great wines of the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s here in Oregon, they were 12.5% or lower. And they lasted 35, 40 years, because we had a bottle at a dinner uh, at Bethel Heights. Actually, one of our friends brought a bottle of 85 Bethel Heights. I had never had it, Bethel Heights Seven Springs. And it was, again, the first crop from Bethel Heights, and they made one too, and it was great still. And it had been abused. We knew where it had been stored. It was not even stored well, and it was still great. And I there was no label. The label had fallen off, but uh, Pat Dudley went into the opposite. Bethel Heights said, well, it just says Bethel Heights 85, Seven Springs. Well, it doesn't seem really high in alcohol. I like the freshness of this. And she went and she pulled out the label, 12.5% alcohol, 3.2 pH. I said, ours are 13, and, or 13.5 even, some of the reds. And we have 3.3 to 3.5 pH, so I guess we're picking too late, you know. But by today, everything has shifted so much. It's different. But the worst thing back then wasn't, was, was the farming, because you had things like uh, you had Geneva Double Curtain. So very low maintenance things mm -hmm. where you'd have 10-foot rows, 8-foot spacing in the rows, and you'd have the canopy hanging to the ground. And then you'd have... You'd have um, the Scott Henry, that was the other big one, Scott Henry, where you had quadrilateral canes. Hmm. So you'd have one trunk and four laterals, one on top of the other on each side. And you're going like, well, that's good. You know, uh, but there was stuff that uh, Smart, uh, guy, uh, a, a viticulturist from Australia named Smart. Mm -hmm. Smart, yeah. Yeah, he, he, he recommended that. And you could have high volume and high quality. And you're going like, 
okay, I don't see it. <laughs> I don't see the quality part, I see the volume. And, and, and then you had all sorts of ideas that came in later, and I go, why don't they just plant it more rationally for the sites? And I, and I tried to do six by four here, and then the vineyard manager I was working with, the company was, uh, uh, was called, uh, as part of OVS. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, uh, and, I, and he said, you know, um, basically, if you make them that tight, you're just gonna be pruning all the time. So I go, okay, seven by four. So not six by four, but seven by four. And seven by four is about perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, but you know they were willing to go farther. And I go like, no, I think we can live with this. Mm -hmm. But four is pretty tight. And we actually experimented at Evening Land when I, uh, when I was there. They just planted a vineyard to one by one meter spacing, and that lasted about four years. And they realized it was just impossible to farm because it was too vigorous here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so what do you see in the industry today that's that has? that has improved, uh, changed, and, and what do you see as you look ahead for Oregon wine? Well, I think, I think the understanding of how to make wine has improved. I think the farming techniques, we're using Guillaume. Now, this is more disruptive. We have our, Hello, our, dog. our farm dog here. That is Cedar, who's coming to stay with me over the weekend. And her, her owner is right there, Kim. Come on, Kim. Come over here. Cedar, she, Cedar loves me, so. Cedar will love me even more after this weekend. I don't. I don't have treats. It's independent of the treats. <laughs> no. Cedar's staying here. Dog interruptions are the best interruptions. Oh, you are? Okay. All right. Have fun. Bye, Kim. <laughs> anyway, so, um, uh, anyway, the, the winemaking is better. The understanding of farming is far better so that today people are planning with Guillaume or double Guillaume, pruning to Guillaume, Poussard, which we're trying to start to people to do. We do it, but it's not a technique very well known yet. Um, and it was, it's been a, it was developed in Burgundy in the 20s as a way to fight disease. And then it felt it was just forgotten after the war. And then Simone and Search, uh, there are two professors in Verona, te they teach viticulture and they talk about the Guillaume Poussard pruning and it's become more fashionable or more accepted again in Europe as a way to prevent trunk disease, of fungal diseases and trunks of the vines. And so we're, we're trying to train, where our, our team now is trained in that, mm -hmm. but uh, it was hard to get a, a, a contract team to learn it, so we had to hire our own vineyard mat team. Mm -hmm. So it's all in-house now. Mm -hmm. And that's Antoine uh, Petigny Samuelson, who's also French, but uh, he, uh, he is very skilled in farming, and that's his whole degree, and his whole life is in viticulture. Mm -hmm. So he was able to train our own team on how to do it. So the farming is much better in general. I think the influx of French people, uh, you know, with, with the idea of wine growing and finding sites being more selective on the sites that they, they, they buy and, and farm and, and being very careful with the farming methods, you know, that's, that's the biggest improvement we'll see here. And then the, the winemaking skills, you know, the, how you handle it, that's not that hard to figure out. And there'll be different styles, people will say, um, well, we want to do it this way. We like bigger wines or more powerful wines, so we'll go to the bigger sites, like the more powerful sites than Dundee on the hilltops or mm -hmm. south-facing vineyards or where there's more heat accumulation than in the Yolamity Hills. But I, I, what we see are the French influx. A lot of them is focused around Yolamity Hills because they like the balance between the temperatures and, and the soils because we have shallower soils than they do in Dundee on Hull. So we have Nakaya and Gelderman. Something, Something like 24% of our vineyard is, is uh, Gelderman, 
and the and 16 or 17 percent is Nikaya, and then much less is Jory, and then below that we have uh, some uh, Woodburn and mm -hmm. uh, Helvetia. So mm -hmm. we plant down here. There's a lot of Helvetia, which is kind of a, a soil series of broken up volcanics, but mainly it's volcanics and and it's shallower because Jory is 48 feet deep. We have a small amount of Jory on the bottom here, but mm -hmm. we but most of it's Nikaya on the top of the first hill, and then the upper part is basically starts off at Nikaya where Seven Springs is in, and then it goes into this gravel bed about the same depth as Nikaya, but it's called Gelderman Jory soils. And they're about four and a half feet to five feet deep on the whole. And they have this layer of gravel which creates more, this is the soil scientist, uh, you know, as, as what I understand from, from, uh, from Pedro Parra. And, um, and so, uh, it's, it, the gravels are very important because it creates for more energy in the plants because they are able to wrap their roots around the, the, um, the soils, mm -hmm. around the rocks above the bedrock, mm -hmm. and that creates more energy and more uptake. Well, it's a winery, sorry. <laughs> it's all good. All good. There's no private place here. That's the thing to learn. <laughs> uh, so you never did finish that dissertation, huh? No, I mean, because uh, I was getting too involved. And when I won the title of Best Sommelier in America, and then a friend of mine, Fred Dame, said, you have to take the Master Sommelier test because you're the best sommelier, supposedly the best sommelier in America. And think of all the young Psalms. You should, be, you should take the test. Whether you pass or fail, at least it's a message to them that it's an important test. And I go like, well, I have to do this world competition in six months. And I thought, well, maybe I'm getting stale. So I'll just take the test. It'll be a good practice. I won't pass because I'm not going to. I, but it'll help me get my mind off the French part of the test, and I'll just do more global. Mm -hmm. And so I was the only one to pass that year, so I crew cupped it. But it was, it was tough because I had to take the, first I had to take the intro, and then there was no certificate, and then I had to take an advanced test, and then the master's in one week. So if you passed one, you just went on to the next. So it was good. It was a good experience. <laughs> I didn't expect to be the only one who passed, but... Uh, and I, but it was interesting. I was happy I passed. It gave me a little more confidence going into the French competition. Mm -hmm. Sure enough. Is there anything? Mm -hmm. Oh, you do have something. Oh, that's a good question. Okay, last question for you then. Uh, out of all your successes, what are you most proud of? I, I'm proud of all of them. I mean, it's, it's like saying, what's your favorite child? I mean, first of all, most of my successes, my failure was as an academic in a way. So. And I'm kind of proud of that too, because if I didn't fail as an academic, I, I would have been, I didn't really fail as an academic, if I didn't pursue it, uh, I wouldn't have done the career I had, which is far more interesting. But I think that, uh, you know, whether it was uh, working at Red Cabbage, my favorite time of my life was probably when I worked at Red Cabbage, which I had to work seven days a week. That crafty guy, John Uppinghouse, who, who, who gave me my first sommelier job in spite of my having been a student, after six months, he said, your sales on the night off are far greater than the head sommelier's, and you know more about wine than he does, and everybody asks for you. So you're the head sommelier, and he's going to be a manager. He's not demoted or anything. He's going to be a manager of the restaurant, but you're the only one with the keys to the cellar now except for me. And I go like, well, we're open seven days a week. And he said, yes. And, and he figured I would make a choice that I could quit or I would stay. And he figured I'd stay because he knew how much fun I was having and how great it was. And, and uh, we were drinking great wines too. I mean, we're serving by the glass Dujac and Ikem and, and Lafitte. I mean, it was amazing what we developed there. But, um, and it was in a basically a, 
a restaurant that was a major, one of the, there were a lot of people, different people came to it, but a big group of people who came there were fishermen from Alaska who had their pockets full of money at the end of a season and just spent it on wine. So anyway, so because of that, because of that, I stayed there um, and I worked seven days a week and I loved it. And, and I go like, well, I'll just postpone writing the dissertation. I'll make enough money in another six months, so it'll be a full year before I quit. But I'll have enough money, I'll just be able to do nothing except my dissertation. But one thing led to another, and, and I just, it was amazing, you know, what mm -hmm. happened. So uh, I think that was my happiest time because it was a totally new discovery that there was actually a profession in the United States to be a sommelier where it hadn't existed before, before that time in 1981. <laughs> almost impossible. Mm -hmm. And in Seattle, to do it in Seattle was like, I thought maybe New York or LA or something where there's a big fancy restaurants. But here I was at a restaurant that, who served bakers and blue collar workers and people from the federal office buildings and, and a lot of suddenly wealthy uh, fishermen from who, <laughs> on, the, on the salmon fisheries at the time, which were worth a fortune. So, you know, it was a very interesting group and it was great because they all wanted to know more. And if they didn't, I didn't have to talk about it, and it was easy. We sold four cases of St. Michel Johannesburg Riesling a week. We, did, we just ordered it every week, you know, SMJR. We didn't have to say what it was. We'll take another four cases of SMJR, that was it. And, uh, but then we sold all sorts of other stuff, like Dujac and Nikem and Great Burgundy, so at a time when it was cheap. Uh, we had Petrus on the list for $57. 1971 Petrus, full markup from $17.50 cost to 57 <laughs> Today, that be worth what about? How much would that be worth on the open market? You know, I don't even know. It's worth thousands of tens of thousands of dollars, probably, because back then no one wanted 71 because everyone thought they went by the vintage charts only, and 70 was the great vintage, and 71 wasn't so good because it was all based on the left bank on on the Medoc, and so 71 happened to be a better vintage in Pomerol and Santa Milione than 70, but no one really knew that at the time. So that's, and there was a glut of Bordeaux on the world market and it went through a collapse in the, in the mid 70s. So when, when these wines were purchased, it had gone from being you know $25 a bottle to 17. I mean, it wasn't that much. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I was buying Dujac at $8 a bottle and, and Gaia, the first vintages of Gaia I bought were 71 and 74 for $8 a bottle on post-op and then the, 78 came out and I think it was 11 but the, you know but you know you're talking about but but but, but I made a dollar 35 an hour as a dishwasher at the time that I could have bought a bottle of Romani Conti for 35 mm -hmm. okay so my monthly rent was 40 so if I if I spend 35 dollars on a bottle of wine that's considerably more mm -hmm. than someone today spending two thousand dollars let's say you know so it's it's but now that Romani Conti costs twenty five thousand so things prices have gone up because of interest in wine and I was there at a time when even on a waiters you know we could get waiters together after work and we could all buy a bottle of wine together and taste it and we could buy great things mm -hmm. Grand Cru Chambertin or Moussigny or whatever uh, or or Bordeaux like Petrus or Lafitte uh, or Ikem we, we had a on this free chem after work, you know, but it was cheap. <laughs> so, uh, but back then, I have to say, poor chem, that was that was like we have to pay for a 1962, you know, a little older vintage, like uh, eighty dollars a bottle, you know, which was considering what the other wines got, that was expensive. Today, 
it's not much more. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the value of some of these desert wines has not risen. Same thing, I just don't buy, I, I bought port back then, and today those guys are hurting. The nice thing about Oregon is that we have a future for Oregon wines globally because Burgundy is limited, and what you can do in Burgundy is limited, and the cost of buying a vineyard is very high, and the opportunity to buy a vineyard is very small. Mm -hmm. So these guys are coming here because they see the wines are very interesting. All of a sudden, they, there's this momentum building, and they feel we could make something very much like Burgundy. It won't be the same as, but it'll be very similar, and we can sell it in France. Mm -hmm. So actually, we're selling our wines in France to such restaurants as Taiwan, Ducasse, and Peak, mm -hmm. and in London to like some of the best restaurants in London, and uh, you know, and we get calls from people in Russia, and we're in Austria, we're in Denmark, Germany, Norway, Sweden, and it's like, you know. You go, I didn't try to do that. That was not a business plan, but that's, it was the opportunity. It was a good time. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So that's luck, too. Luck. I just tell, it's luck. Good time. If I were born 10 years later, I wouldn't have had the same luck or, or if 10 years earlier. It was there to, at the right time. And it was at the, here at the right time to buy this. At a time when the former owners, the Jansons, felt comfortable with wine, and then they felt comfortable with me. But you know they wouldn't have been ten years earlier. It was still a struggle for the for the wife. Mm -hmm. So, but I appreciate that. So, there, I I still I'm friends with them. I hope I still am friends. With them. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today, for your answers. This is a, one of the more I think uh, informative interviews I've ever had. So, okay, I learned way more today than I can ever remember. But <laughs> right. we didn't even talk about the soil sandwich. <laughs> Next time. That's an hour lecture. <laughs> exactly. Well, we appreciate it. Thank you so Thank much. You. And uh, we'll go ahead and let you off here. Okay. And you can feel free to. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.